This is the Caveat Mentor Podcast, Season 1, Episode 3, where we're covering what blockchains are useful for, and by extension, what they're not useful for. My name is Mentor. Uh, I've had the past 10 years uh, in crypto to make mistakes and learn from them. I currently write both Web2 and Web3 software, and it's my intention in this episode, the previous ones and the coming ones, to explain blockchain technology the way that I understand it. Before we dive in, I have two housekeeping notes. The first, specifically for this episode, I would like to emphasize that this is a technical perspective. None of this is intended as either investment or regulatory advice. We're going to be talking about what blockchains can do, uh, not whether we should use them or not, or whether what they can do is a good thing for society. Uh, perhaps that will be the topic uh, of a future episode. The second thing is that the raffle of this episode will be basic carbon tokens, uh, BCT tokens, which are tokenized carbon certificates. It's done by a cool project called the Toucan Protocol. Uh, they take verified carbon standard uh, carbon offsets and they tokenize them. Uh, so I'll be giving away tokens worth the CO2 absorption of 80 mature trees for a year. If you want to join the raffle, instructions at the end of the episode. So for this episode, I created a mnemonic to help myself remember uh, the elements of a blockchain that are useful uh, to think about when explaining to other people what they're useful for. So I'm going to put an image in your mind and hope that this mnemonic is useful to you as well. Uh, I'd like you to imagine a pet in your mind. I'm imagining a dog, but you can pick any. Um, and pick a lid of any form of container and imagine the lid on top of the pet. Uh, so this is the mnemonic, a lid pet, uh, which stands for L, ledger, I, immutable, D, distributed, the PE in pet is for permissionless, and the T is for trustless. So these are the elements or the characteristics that make up a blockchain. And whenever trying to uh, decide whether a blockchain is useful for something, all you need to ask is the application that I'm thinking of, does it need any of these lid pet elements? So I'm first going to take you through these elements and what their advantages can be uh, for a technical perspective. And then afterwards, we're going to go over a number of uh, current case studies, so protocols and applications that exist, and how they leverage in a useful way these elements. So the L of LidPet, Ledger. So when is a blockchain useful from a ledger perspective? Well, when you need a ledger. Now that sounds silly maybe and obvious, but uh, more than once I've heard someone say things like, I want to create a blockchain powered AI. Well, as a technical person, when you think about that, if you rephrase that to, I want to make a <laughs> ledger powered AI, I want to make a spreadsheet powered AI, I want to make a database powered AI, when you think about it, it's not a useful application of a ledger. So that's the L. That's the way you can think about that. So does the application require a ledger, a spreadsheet? 
All right, the I in lidpet, immutable. Um, what the immutability of the ledger allows for is basically a guaranteed history, an audit trail. Once something is written, it cannot be removed. You cannot rewrite history. Uh, that can be very useful if for you, uh, for your application, it is useful to have a permanent and unfalsifiable trail of all actions taken. Uh, we'll, we'll get later to a cool example of when that makes sense. Uh, one quick one uh, I, can, uh, I can point out already. Uh, go, go to Google for fun and type in Google Graveyard. And what you'll end up with is a list of products that Google uh, at some point had, uh, personally, <laughs> the one I'm still upset about. Uh, Google used to have this really cool tool called Google Inbox. Well, when Google deploys their applications, they're not on immutable uh, ledgers, so they were run on their own infrastructure. So they took them down, and my favorite email tool thus went to the Google graveyard, never to be seen again. So immutable. Doesn't matter to you that things are permanent. So lidpet, D, distributed. What distribution in the distributed sense for blockchain means is we have a very high degree of redundancy. So in order to take down a blockchain, you have to take down all its nodes. This uh, makes for very high uptime guarantees. So for example, Ethereum uh, has never gone down. So Ethereum is a smart contract platform, uh, a spreadsheet with macros, and it hasn't gone down ever. Um, as far as I'm aware, maybe someone's going to point out a very, uh, uh, a very small moment somewhere where something happened. Uh, there were definitely very uh, controversial moments in the Ethereum blockchain history. For example, with the DAO, consider hard forks and so forth. But it going down and just halting or breaking and needing to be fixed, this hasn't happened. Uh, contrast that to uh, Amazon Web Services or the Google Cloud Platform. These are very cool services. Like, don't get me wrong, I, I love building on centralized infrastructure. It's very great for the things that it's great at. I personally am a huge fan of Firebase, which is a service that, uh, that Google provides, which runs on their, um, on their centralized servers. However, I know once in a while, it's going to go down. It doesn't have the redundancy and distributed redundancy that something like the Ethereum blockchain does. So lidpet, the P, permissionless. So remember, the permissionlessness means that everyone has the same rights on the blockchain or on a blockchain. Uh, what this allows for is a high degree of innovation. There's no barrier barriers to entry. If you think about the really true big innovations in, well, a lot of history, they rarely come from large gate-kept institutions. Apple started from a garage. They didn't start from an innovation department somewhere in, well, pick some big corporate that existed at the time. Um, the permissionlessness of a blockchain means that someone who has an idea to do something cool with a ledger type system, uh, which often means a financial application, but not always, uh, means they don't need to ask anyone for permission. They don't need credentials. 
They don't need to be let in by a gatekeeper. This also lends itself to uh, a level of fairness. There is no discrimination at the gate. You're too young, you're too old, you don't have the high or the right degree, you don't have the right passport, you don't speak the right language. Uh, of course, you need to speak the blockchain programming language. Uh, but in this, uh, in this sense, permissionlessness is much fairer than most other systems. So the last element of lid pet, the T, is the trustlessness. We have no third party arbiter. No one who, as a central party, can decide to censor what happens on this system. Now again, I'd like to stress, do I think that it's good that there is no centralized censorer? I'm not going to make a judgment about that. We're just talking about the technology right now. So this all culminates in a blockchain, a distributed ledger that is immutable, permissionless, trustless, and decentralized. A smart contract platform like Ethereum means that we can deploy onto a blockchain pieces of software that are fully autonomous once live and basically cannot be taken down, are accessible to everyone, have a guaranteed history, uh, and can't be censored by third parties. So I can imagine that this all sounds rather abstract. So what we're going to do is we're going to take some case studies, some existing protocols, uh, not things that could exist in theory, but things you can use today, that leverage these aspects or a aspect of blockchain technology in a way that means they couldn't exist uh, with the same functionality on a centralized platform. The first one is a protocol called Arweave. So Arweave is a protocol that allows you to store data permanently with a single upfront fee. Uh, basically what they do when you upload a file, you pay uh, for that upload and that money is used to create an endowment that basically sponsors that file uh, for all eternity. Why did they use a blockchain for this? So first, uh, both their consensus and data storage is distributed, which means that when you upload a file to Arweave, it's not in one place, it's in all sorts of places all across the world in a very redundant way. And these people who run uh, Arweave nodes, they are paid for this service. That means that if, say, all centralized uh, cloud storage data centers go up in flames for some reason, uh, there's a good chance that there's some random guy uh, somewhere in, well, I want to say Siberia, but I actually don't know if there are Arweave nodes uh, in Russia, um, but who in his basement has a copy of the Arweave, uh, Arweave ledger, keeping a copy of your important data. So this distribution, distributed nature, the redundancy, is a very useful feature. Likewise, the consensus, so the way that people keep each other honest, so the people who store the files get rewarded and the people who don't, don't get rewarded, uh, is also entirely distributed and trustless, which is to say that there's no company that's keeping this all in check. There's no company that could go bankrupt so that all your files are now lost. Arweave is also immutable. So once data is submitted, if accepted by the nodes, because it's cryptographically sound, uh, it can't be corrupted or manipulated. It's permissionless, which means everyone has access. Anyone can upload. 
doesn't matter who you are, where you are, so long as you adhere to the rules of the Rweave system, uh, you can interact with it. No need to get approved, create an account, upload a credit card, uh, yeah. I'd like to add a nuance there. I'm sure there's some skeptical people listening right now thinking, well, if I upload data to Rweave, and that means the whole world can see it, that doesn't sound particularly useful, you silly mentor. Who's going to upload their pictures to this system? Well, remember from a programming perspective, uh, it's perfectly fine to upload encrypted data. Like the fact that a platform has public access doesn't mean that it is by nature not private. One thing you might note at a system like this um, is, well, what if someone uploads objectionable material? The instructions to create an atom bomb or God forbid someone uploads child porn. Uh, it's not very nice to have an immutable record <laughs> of that kind of thing on a highly redundant distributed system now, is there? Um, so the interesting thing is that Arweave tries to combat this through what they call democratic moderation. So any node can ignore any content and reject to uh, accept this file into the network. And there is a shared uh, or there are shared lists, for example, by the Internet Watch Foundation that keep a list of files and their hashes. Remember from the previous sheet, the fingerprints, the flavors of files, uh, of files that are objectionable content, uh, which means it's feasible to make sure that if you are running an Rweave node, you're not uh, hosting objectionable material. Now, do I think this is a good system? I don't know. I, I haven't used Rweave all that much. But what I think is interesting is this system couldn't exist without a blockchain. Up until now, you would always have needed either volunteers making files available, similarly to a BitTorrent system, uh, or you need a centralized company that is paying people for the service or keeping data centers up and running. So in this sense, Arweave has created something for which a blockchain is necessary. And if I'm honest, I think it's rather cool. Another example is Uniswap, a completely different uh, platform. So Uniswap allows you to swap one token for another token. In that sense, you can think of it like a stockbroker, only you can swap anything you have for anything that's available on the exchange. So what are the consequences of Uniswap running on a blockchain? Well, for one, Uniswap runs on a distributed system, which means the code is autonomous. The macro of the spreadsheet, if you will, uh, runs everywhere, uh, not on a server that can go down. So its uptime is basically 100%. The Uniswap code is immutable. So they cannot change the rules unexpectedly, which is very interesting if you think about the permissionlessness. So anyone can hook into Uniswap. So since Uniswap is on-chain, um, basically if I write another smart contract, I can interact with Uniswap. Uh, perhaps I write a smart contract that does, I don't know, something with insurance. And as a part of my system, I ask everyone who wants to be insured for some money. And if we need to pay out the insurance, uh, we do so not in the euros that you 
put in as an insurance, but we go to Uniswap to buy the token that you lost, the token that we insured. And this can all be done automatedly. So our piece of software can interact with another piece of software that is made to exchange tokens. And again, in an immutable way, with the guarantee that forevermore, until perpetuity and eternity, Uniswap will act the way that it does today. Now, if you're a programmer listening to this, you know how much of a headache uh, it can cause when a company has an API, so a way for us developers to interact with their systems, and they update their API. And before you know it, your software as a developer is broken because, I don't know, Facebook decided to change their, their URL structure. It's very inconvenient. All right, so lastly for Uniswap, uh, it's trustless. So there's no third party who's checking transactions and deciding which are allowed, which aren't allowed, uh, which ones get censored. Uh, your actions don't, can't get modified on Uniswap. Uh, there's a nuance here, which has to do with MEV. Uh, it's an interesting topic that we're gonna probably cover in a future episode. Uh, in the meantime, if it's something you wanna read into, have a look at the work done by the Flashbots team and their MEV Boost software, which is launching with the merge uh, this, uh, this September. An interesting thing, given the trustless nature of Uniswap uh, and the fact that it runs on a blockchain, is we've eliminated counterparty risk in trading. So we can trade between people and know for sure that both parties have the asset that they say that they do. And that sounds like a simple thing, but in the financial system, counterparty risk is huge. And it is a sometimes big and sometimes small drag and a cost on every transaction. All right, so I have two other examples, one financial and one non-financial. The financial one is Circle's USDC. So Circle's the company, centralized company, you know, they have a physical office, uh, and they create the USDC, the USD Circle stablecoin. Basically, they have a bank account, and for every dollar on their bank account, they create an on-chain token. So there's a row in our spreadsheet to keep track of USDC tokens. And they guarantee that every USDC token on a given blockchain can be redeemed for a traditional dollar in traditional banking system, uh, which means that we can now interact with tokens on the blockchain that are worth exactly one dollar, uh, which is cool for all sorts of reasons. The reason I use Circle as an example here is because they're a very interesting example where their code runs on a distributed ledger that is immutable, permissionless, and trustless, but they have centralized control over their stablecoin. And I'm not just talking about their bank account. So the immutability. So the audit trail um, is immutable. So all transactions that are made in USDC are visible, visible on the blockchain. It's perfect. Like it's the, the accountant's wet dream. It's you want to see where all the money went, where it came from. It's all there in the cryptographically verifiable uh, ledger, which is immutable. Interestingly, Circle can freeze and reverse transactions and balances. So how's that possible, given that we are on this, uh, this immutable blockchain? Well, their code is immutable, 
but their code includes a function that says the creator of this contract gets to freeze balances if they want to, according to these and these and these rules, which are programmed rules. So permissionlessness is very interesting in this context. So anyone can integrate things with USDC. Uh, we can have DeFi with USDC. We can have collateralized borrowing with USDC. It is censorship free on the, uh, on the base layer unless Circle decides to intervene. So this is a, a very interesting intersection where if you listen to conversations of blockchain fanatics and fanatic blockchain skeptics, uh, the fanatics might say things like, well, you know, transactions on blockchains are unstoppable. And a fanatic skeptic might say uh, they're, they're unstoppable and that is terrible. Well, both of them are kind of wrong in that, that situation because while the actions on a blockchain are unstoppable. We can't stop people from calling functions that are uh, deployed on the blockchain. Uh, the rules are immutable, but if we make one of the immutable rules that there is a party that can blacklist things and reverse them, that's perfectly possible. The interesting thing in this uh, blockchain situation is still uh, the integrations are still permissionlessness. Uh, sorry, are still permissionless. So if I have a cool idea for some sort of banking application, whatever that may be, something, something with borrowing, something with lending, something with transferring money, if I'd want to do that in a traditional system, it would be downright impossible for me as a private citizen, thirty-something-year-old, uh, uh, getting a banking license. It's just not feasible. Uh, even if I go to the Dutch Central Bank and say, hey, I want to just create a really small bank. Like, just let me let me be a bank and transact maximum 500 euros. I just think I have a really cool idea that I want to test. Uh, I want to create a prototype and check it in the market. I will not get that permission. Whereas with USDC, I can do that. So I can create my bank on a blockchain, uh, assuming that what I want to test will benefit from uh, from a pet lid uh, acronym verified <laughs> action. Uh, I can do that perfectly permissionlessly. Uh, but if the US government goes to Circle and says, hey, we think Mentor is breaking a law here, then Circle can freeze my accounts. So yeah, I think that's a very, very interesting balance there between a system being a distributed ledger that's immutable, permissionless, and trustless, and whether the software on top of that needs to adhere to those principles. So yeah, it still runs on the trustless blockchain, but the rules are clear. The rules cannot be changed by Circle because they are on-chain, but we know what the rules are, including they get to blacklist things. And again, there's no peer-to-peer -peer counterparty risk here. And if you ever wonder uh, how big of a problem counterparty risk is, for fun, try to transfer a small amount of money to a friend or stranger in a faraway country, wherever that might be from you. I once worked with a very nice man from India who did some, uh, some creative work for me. I wanted to pay him about a uh, thousand euros, I think it was. And I kid you not, it took weeks. And there were a number of intermediaries in between that all took a cut of this transaction. Because basically, 
the money had to go through a number of banks who all didn't trust each other and all needed to charge money to make sure that the money would go from bank A to bank B to bank C to bank D to end up in my, uh, uh, yeah, my, friend, my friend's bank account. Yeah, this is something where USDC can, for example, help a lot. Now, yes, regulatory people listening, uh, perhaps this violates all sorts of rules. So I'm not going to make a judgment on whether you should be using USDC. Um, I'm just going to point out the cool technical things that it can do. So a final example, a non-financial example that doesn't use or require all the aspects of a blockchain. Um, that is POAP. It's my day job, the proof of attendance protocol. Uh, it is a company, incorporated company, that is the steward of the POAP protocol, which is a smart contract set that runs on the Gnosis blockchain, formerly called XDAI. Basically what POAP does is it allows you as an event creator to register your event, get back a number of QR codes, and when people come to your event, either physical or online, they can scan their unique QR codes and every QR code allows people to claim an NFT that basically says, you know, person A came to such and such event, which creates uh, a record on chain, on a blockchain, um, of what events someone has gone to. So a priority for POAP is permissionlessness. So for, for us, it's very important that everyone in the world who wants to can see who has what POAP tokens. This allows for a lot of tinkering, for people to create all sorts of cool stuff that perhaps we didn't even think about. One of my personal favorites is the token gating of roles within Discord, Discord groups. So whenever you join a club, you join someone's Discord uh, Discord group uh, through the Collabland bot, which you can find at collab.land. Uh, you can allow people to link their crypto wallets. The bot will then check whether a certain person has uh, certain community POAPs. Perhaps you have a, a weekly call where you hand out a POAP uh, and everyone who has more than, say, 20 POAPs of weekly calls is considered a hardcore member and gets a cool extra Discord role. Well, you can use POAP and Collabland to do this in a verifiable and scalable way. Uh, it's used for airdrops, it's used for reputation, it's used as a social profile. There's all sorts of cool things you can do with it, but permissionlessness is one of the core tenets for POAP. The decentralized and immutable aspects uh, are very useful, but less important than the permissionlessness, in, the, in my opinion, though maybe some of my colleagues might disagree. So there's infinite uptime, there's a verifiable immutable record, and the tokens are unfalsifiable, not unimportant. Uh, I've had conversations with non-crypto friends who ask me, hey, why does POAP need to be on a blockchain? Why can't you just have a central database? So for me, the permissionlessness appears to be the most important. But I'm sure some of my colleagues would say, well, the most important is actually that the tokens are unfalsifiable. Uh, not only can people not create fake POAP tokens, but even if we, as the company POAP, try to cheat and create fake tokens, or you know, a, a year from now we create a token for an event that uh, happened a year ago, perhaps we try to create 
extra tokens for a very desirable event and sell them in a shady fashion to uh, to some of our friends for whatever uh, for whatever reasons. Uh, well, that's not possible uh, because there isn't a decentralized and immutable record of all tokens, so you can audit us publicly and in real time. One of the aspects of a blockchain that uh, POAP doesn't need all that much is immutability. As a matter of fact, we moderate and we censor POAPs. Like if someone creates a POAP token for an event that is uh, undesirable for whatever reason, perhaps it's illegal, perhaps it violates copyright, uh, perhaps, I don't know, it doesn't suit guidelines for whatever reason. Yeah, it's important for us to be able to take things down. So the immutability is, aside from the records, yeah, it's not that important in my in my mind. Again, I might be upsetting a lot of colleagues. Um, but it's, in my opinion, an interesting example of how not every application needs or requires uh, all the aspects and all the elements that a blockchain can provide. All right, so honestly, I uh, feel a little bit like this episode was uh, less structured than the previous ones, so I hope this was useful. Uh, please let me know on Twitter whether you found any value in this explanation, the silly pet lid uh, mnemonic <laughs> and the, the examples. Uh, to close off, uh, so last week I gave away an ENS token, or last week, last episode, I gave away an ENS token. Uh, this episode's POAB raffle is for 80 trees worth of CO2 compensation um, as given away in basic carbon tokens. If you want to uh, perhaps win these uh, these basic carbon tokens, uh, you can buy this episode's POAP. The link will be in the description, uh, as well as the instructions for how to join the raffle. So this is episode three already in the series. I hope that this is useful to you. If you have any requests for where to take the coming episodes, please let me know. I think at this point we've covered the basis of things that I really wanted to. So now we can get into more specific things now that we have an understanding of the basis. So yeah, let me know on Twitter. My handle is actually mentor. I enjoy hearing from, uh, from everyone, both suggestions, criticisms, and funny memes if you have them. And I hope to see you in the next episode.